0: Good morning. Good morning. Scripture reading will be taken from Matthew five twenty-one through 26. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is to the court, is answerable to the court and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with, to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison truly I tell you you will not get out of until you have paid the last penny this is God's word you may be seated <clears throat>
1: Let's pray. O oh, blessed Father, nations rage, cities spiral, neighborhoods tremble, but yours is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And you have made us your ambassadors. We are your human agents. We are your salt and light in the middle of this chaos. And on this day and in this moment, we pause, we break our usual routines to step out of our work responsibilities, and in this hour to gather to hear your word, we ask for human ears and eyes to perceive your word, to understand it, and to change in order that we can be your ambassadors and agents in neighborhoods that trembled in cities that spiral in nations' rage. This, Father, we pray with all of our heart, in the name of the Christ, amen. There's a lawyer and um, an academic psychologist who have written a book. Uh, It was published just a couple of months ago. And this book addresses three big myths that are prevalent in America, especially on campuses, in political parties, and in politics, and between ideology groups. And those three myths are these. What doesn't kill us makes us weaker. That is humans are fragile and they should not be exposed to what makes them feel discomfort or makes them uncomfortable. The second is you always trust your feelings. Feelings are paramount. Feelings trump thinking. And then thirdly, life is a battle between good people and bad people. It's black and white thing. It's binary thinking. It's us versus them. If you don't agree with me, You're not just a bad person, you're also an idiot. And our country, the country that we live in, in this age, seems to be so angry, and to be so polarized, and is becoming increasingly mean-spirited, and from time to time, unfortunately, that breaks out into violence. I don't need to give you any examples from social media and newspapers. If, if, you, if you watch television or read the papers or read any of the journals or magazines, you know this to be true. But the trajectory of our nation sort of looks like this. It begins with disagreements that take place between people. But those disagreements are having a hard time being dealt with emotionally and intellectually, and that leads to people being offended. And in their offense becoming ang- angry, and contempt, which is a cousin of anger, being hand-in-hand you know, hand with that anger, and contempt, because it flavors the anger, leads people to harm others. Now, before I go further, I want to clarify that anger does have a place in the fallen world, a world where we encounter uh, terrorism and all kinds of injustices, we encounter slavery, we encounter sex trafficking, it should make us angry. But anger is a secondary emotion alerting us to something wrong. That we are hurt, we are injured, there's something that is making us fearful, that there's something wrong, that there is a place for anger. Now, Jesus experienced anger. Mark chapter 3, it's a Sabbath. And people, the the religious leaders of his time, are already beginning to pick up that Jesus is not like them. And so on the Sabbath, there is this fellow that has a a physical ailment. And they're sitting there, and they're watching Jesus to see if he is going to break rules of Sabbath in order to heal this fellow. Because of the Sabbath, in their mind, was was a, a sacred time in which no one No one was worthy of healing. And so Jesus asked them a very simple question. Is it it okay to save a life, to save a life on the Sabbath? And they just look at him. And in verse 5, he looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely stored. That's Mark chapter 3, verse 5. One of the things you take out of that passage, though, is that rules don't change lives, but grace does. When Jesus cleared the temple in all four Gospels, it is perhaps a moment of indignation, but the word anger is is never mentioned. None of of the accounts mention anger. There is a place for there to be anger in a fallen world. But there is a place where human anger goes wrong and that is when that anger is held onto and it becomes contempt. And in that contempt, it becomes the will to harm another human being. That contempt creates a path to harm another person. And one of the things that's uh, just basic about contempt, which makes it such a dangerous thing, is that contempt lowers the value of Of another human being. You can say to somebody. I'm angry with that person. So I'm just not going to talk to him. Or you can harbor contempt. In your heart. And you're going to say. I've got to get that guy. I've got to get that woman. Contempt lowers the value of another human being. When when that happens. It makes it easier to hurt someone. To degrade somebody. To deprive them. We know the lessons of the late 1930s, Western Europe. When Jewish people in Western Europe became contemptible, they also became exterminatable. As contempt, it says that a person is worthy of harm. They deserve it. The question I pose this morning for us as a church, how do disciples of Jesus make better a world that seems to be spinning on an axis of offense and anger and contempt. How does a community of redeemed people live in a world of offenses and contempt? As we begin to remember that the Bible teaches us that we become a people of a certain influence and character in the world. In Matthew chapter 5, a passage we looked at last week, Verse 13 begins, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But you know what else you are? You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, salt does salt stuff, light does light stuff. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I love salt. I don't like it... Um, to the point that it becomes unhealthy, but there's something about salt. Salt influences everything it touches. It makes a really great steak even better. But one of the things about salt is it always goes in one direction. Nobody ever says, you know, this salt really tastes like a good steak. They say, this steak tastes great with this salt. It, It has an ability to get below the surface and to penetrate what it touches. It's unmistakable. And light is the same way. By its very character, it overcomes darkness, and it's never the other way around. The greatest darkness that you can imagine, you can be in Carlsbad Cavern, or someplace like that, the greatest darkness that you can imagine can never overcome the smallest of flames from the smallest of matches. And the reason that Jesus is telling his disciples, your salt and your light, is... He's saying, you, you have, because of my presence in you, and because of my teaching, and the kind of heart that's being shaped, you are the kind of people that are going into the world, the Roman Empire world, the world that we live in today, 2,000 years removed. We go into this world with a certain kind of life and character that makes us noticeable. It makes us noticeable when we walk into rooms and we walk into workplaces. When we're out in the neighborhood, when we're out in the community, our our influence and character as disciples of Jesus is something that stands out. And that's precisely what happens when we obey the call of 1 John 2, verse 6. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must, not an option, must walk as Jesus did. In other words, we are the people who want to walk the earth the way that God walked the earth as Jesus. And one of the ways that we do this is this we choose to be unoffendable. Brand Hansen tells in a book of going to a business meeting. And the the leader of the meeting is telling all of the people in in attendance, he says, you know, here's a choice that you can make every day. You can choose not to be offended. It's a choice that you can make. And Hanson, as he writes about, you know, recalling this meeting, he said, the very idea that I could choose to be unoffendable was completely offensive to me. (laughs) But here's the thing. But here's the thing, is it possible that Satan, the deceiver, is it possible that Satan tries to create separation between the people of the gospel from the people who need the gospel one offense at a time? Here are some examples from the life of Jesus. In John chapter 4, you know this story, we talk about it a lot. Jesus is in Samaria, the land of offensive people, if you're Jewish. And he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman who has had failed multiple times in relationships with men. And now she is forced to draw water in the heat of the day because she is offensive to the water-gathering clatch in the morning and in the evening. That's why she has to go in the, evening, in, the, in the heat of the day at lunch. And think about those disciples. They're coming back, and they see her. And what's the question? Why is he talking to her? Whatever everyone else found offensive about that woman, Jesus was ready to say, could you give me a drink of water? to start a conversation. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is at a dinner when a prostitute in town comes in, pours oil on his feet. The head of that dinner is offended that Jesus would allow someone like that to touch a guy like him. In fact, he's thinking in his his mind, if this guy was really a prophet, he would know what kind of person is touching him. But you know what Jesus says? turns to the woman. He says, your faith has, has, has saved you. Go in peace. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has to go down the Jordan River, gets to Jericho, begins to cut west over to Jerusalem. And as he's walking through Jericho, there is this little sawed-off run of a social outcast by the name of Zacchaeus, who is the chief tax collector. He is completely offensive to the people around him. He's in cahoots with the Romans. He's in cahoots with the Romans. He is utterly offensive to the people in Jericho, but he climbs this tree, and Jesus sees him. I mean, I, mean, I would see somebody climb up the side of that balcony in order to see me. And he says, you know what? Why don't you come down off of that tree? And he does this incredibly surprising, astonishing thing. He says, I'm going to go and have have dinner with you. And then in John 21, what does Jesus do when he is reunited to his so-called best friends in all the world for the first time after they have disowned him in his hour of greatest need? Is there anything more offensive than a friend who is not loyal, who has betrayed you? What does Jesus do? He fixes breakfast for them and says, come and find something to eat. You know, those Old Testament prophets had a pretty good idea of what was happening in Israel during their time. And the the three big ones, like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos, when it comes to offense, they use the word offense in in describing what's happening in Israel in God's eyes. They use the word offense to describe the very people that Jesus came and lived among. In Amos chapter 5, I know how many are your offenses, how great your sins. There are those who are oppressing the innocent and taking bribes and depriving the poor of justice in the courts. Those prophets are saying, there's everywhere we look, there's just a fence. And yet Jesus came. And yet he came. Being offended would not limit his interaction with fallen human beings. I wonder if we've ever thought about how offensive our own thought life is to God. Our actions, our emotional life, where we place our affections, our tolerance of idols, How offensive that is to God. And yet, Jesus came. And yet he came. I'm not trying to define and saying that maybe we should choose to be unoffendable, that there's no such thing as an offense. What I'm saying is that we can can choose to not be derailed in our mission as a church to love God and to love... Love who? Love people and then do what? Change the world. And one of the things that we do in choosing not to be offendable is the second point, we give up the right to hold on to anger. When we become disciples of Jesus, He is calling us to a certain kind of selfhood. He is calling us to to be part of a responsible humanity. And along those lines... Paul tells the church in Ephesus, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still what? And do not give the devil a foothold. Right there. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Right there, we do not hold on to our anger even for a day. And there is more going on there than just, you know, healthy emotions. James, at the very beginning of that really practical letter that's written out generally to the church, he says, Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. There's Oh, King Solomon, son of David, wise, wise individual, writes a book called Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 9. He reminds us that where you find a fool, you find right there in his lap anger anger doesn't always mean a foolish person doesn't always mean a fool but he, what he's saying is that when you find a fool you're going to find anger a, a, a quick to get angry person is a dangerous person the smallest thing just sort of sets them off everybody walking around on eggshells and the power of that the power of anger that is that can be destructive is even seen in the fact that people don't even have to be angry with us in kind of this personal way, but we, but we get sort of intimidated by it. I mean, who likes to be honked at? Driving down the road, somebody honks at you, first thing you do is, why are you so angry with me? I'm just driving. You don't even know who it was or if they were even honking at you. I remember when we first moved to Brazil, I thought everyone there was so angry because Brazilians were always honking their cars in traffic. And it, was, it wasn't because they were angry. The, way, you know, the Brazilians have a completely different cultural idea about honking your horn because of the way they drive. They're just letting you know where they are. But more than one occasion, I rolled down the window and told them to go back to Jersey. You know? <laughs> nobody, likes to be, nobody likes to face anger, right? Even if it's a honk. But one of the most audacious things that Jesus says is found in the Sermon on the Mount, the text that... that uh, was read for us just a few minutes ago. Jesus says, everybody knows this. It's been said by the men of old that if you murder someone, you will be subject to judgment. He then says, but I say to you, if you are angry with someone, same language, you will be subject to judgment. Why does Jesus treat murder and anger the same? It's because he knows that murder is just anger that has blossomed to the fullest extent. Every murder began as an angry seed that kept getting watered and watered and watered because we didn't let it go. Because we let the sun go down and go down and go down and go down. And instead of letting go of it and dealing with it, we watered it and watered it and watered it. Disciples of Jesus of Nazareth are not to be recognizable because of their anger. But because how they have stepped out of it into something else, something more beautiful. It is, I believe, At the human level, a moment of great spiritual enlightenment when we decide that we're going to give up the right to hold on to our anger. It is a breakthrough when we realize that we are better off without anger. And if you hold on to that anger, how are you supposed to live as a disciple? How are you, if you hold on to anger, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the left? Two verses later. Or if someone compels you to go one mile, to go two miles. And if you can't do that, then you will not be able to choose love as a response to contempt. Jesus follows up all of this with, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, Say it with me. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That you may be... And the new NIV puts children... It's not really the point. It's sons. And that does that's not exclusive of women. But the word son means... That you have this special relationship, that there's inheritance, that you're following in the steps of your father. You're identifiable as a son in your actions, your father. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, it's not very noticeable, is it? It's not, it doesn't stand out at all. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even people who deny God do that? Be perfect means be a a person of, of whole integrity. Not without mistake, but be whole as God is perfectly whole. I, I know I'm asking us to do something so counterintuitive, but our Messiah came into this world of enemies with love in his heart. He came into the world, into the presence of people who had the seeds of his crucifixion in their hearts. Paul was thinking about what God is really like in 1 Corinthians 13. The older translations, again, probably a little better. Love is not easily angered. It's not easily provoked. Paul is saying that you can do a lot of good in the world, but if love is not in your heart, in chapter 13, 1 Corinthians That you can do a lot of good stuff. But if love is not in the heart of you and it, then it's just a lot of noise. One of the leading scholars in the world, New Testament world, a guy by the name of D.A. Carson, he writes in a little book called Love in the Hard Places that the church, us, is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, which is, if you know D.A. Carson, he likes to use pretentious language. He's just saying the church is not a collection of things that naturally go side by side with each other. Not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. And we owe him a common allegiance. I think one of the remarkable things about the church is that it's filled with people who are willing to love someone in the name of Jesus who he or she would otherwise despise. And it makes no sense except for a cross on a hill far away 2,000 years ago. Loving people in spite of the ways that they might offend us, try to offend us, In, in investing in offending us means divesting ourselves of worldly statuses and becoming humble. Because as Paul says in Romans 3, we've all sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. Freely justified by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Tony Campolo tells his story, and I'll close with this. He tells a story of, he's a, he a professor at St. David's College in Pennsylvania. He's a fly across the United States all the way to Hawaii. He's in Honolulu, suffering from jet lag at 3.30 in the morning. Goes into a donut all night. Donut and coffee shop. And while he's sitting there, there's a group of prostitutes that come in. They sit on either side of him. They're known by the the guy behind the counter. They come in every night. And they're crude and they're rude and they're loud and they're proud and and all of that. And and, uh, Tony is about to get up out of his seat, leave, when one of them, one of the prostitutes by the name of Agnes says, you know, my birthday is tomorrow. And all the other prostitutes they start, wow, you know, why are you telling this? You want to sing Abby' birthday? You want a cake? And she goes, no, I'm sorry, I brought it up. I've never had a birthday party before. Why start now? And they get up and they leave. And Tony has this brilliant idea. He says to the guy behind the counter, why don't we throw a birthday party for Agnes? And the guy behind the counter goes, I, I've known these, these ladies. That's a great idea. So Tony went, he bought streamers, he bought a cake, bought balloons and all these kinds of things. And and, and the word got out that there was going to be a birthday party at that donut shop for Agnes. And lots of prostitutes and ladies of the night kind of show up. And when Agnes comes in, they all yell, Happy birthday. And they begin to sing. Happy birthday. First time in this lady's life. And she begins to bawl, just cry. And they bring out this cake with the candles on it. And uh, she says, that's the most beautiful thing. Can we just look at it for a little while? And they go, sure, it's your first birthday party. And she said, "I, I, I really, can I just take it home? I'll be right back. She takes off. And Tony, being a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, he says, it seemed like the right thing to do. And he just addressed everybody in that donut shop. And he said, you know, here's what I'd, I'd like for us to do. Could we just say a prayer for Agnes? And he says, you know, let's that, that's, that's pray that somehow Agnes gets the gospel. Let's pray somehow that, that, that God is good to Agnes. And he begins to pray. And when he's done with the prayer, the guy behind the counter's a little upset, and he said, I didn't know you were a preacher type. He said, I'd known you were part of a church. I mean, what kind of church do you go to? And he said, I go to the kind of church that throws birthday parties at 3.30 in the morning in a donut shop for prostitutes. That story's kind of out there. But when Jesus came... He gave us new rules of engagement with people in our world. We choose as disciples to look past the typical ways that people are offended because Christ looked past our offenses and loved us and died for us. We want to give you an opportunity this morning. If you need to respond to the gospel, we're going to have some shepherds down here at the front. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. There is no way that anything that you have done in your life is so offensive to the sensibilities of God that He would not allow you with a wide open door and open outstretched arms, allow you to come into his family. There is nothing that you have done that is so offensive that he does not see you through the lens of love. And if we can help you make that connection to God this morning... We want to do so. And we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds at the front. Or if there are other ways that we can minister to you, these shepherds are down at the front to receive you. We want you to come now as we stand and we sing to God.